Our sermon passage this week is a short one, but an influential one. It's a verse from the Old Testament from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk, a very little read book, I think, by most people. Um, in fact, the way we talk about Habakkuk as one of the minor prophets, which is, I think, an unfortunate, unfortunate categorization. We say minor prophets sometimes, and you think, well, that's not that important. But this verse in particular was foundational in the minds of the New Testament writers to explain what it means to live as people who have been called by the grace of God. Last week, if you were here, or you were listening online, you know, we talked about how the gospel is good news for the lost. For those who are far from God, it's the good news of a new record. That despite the reality of our bad records before God, all of the sins that we've accumulated, all the things we've done wrong, that the gospel tells us that we can live not under the verdict of our own hearts, not under the verdict of our deeds, the verdicts that other people pass on us. We can live under the verdict of Jesus, which means that we can be seen as righteous in God's sight by faith. His righteousness credited to us received as a gift. But the question for us this morning, and the thing I want to look at, is what do we do after that? How is the gospel still good news for those of us who have already been forgiven of sin, who are already righteous in God's sight because of Jesus? With that said, this is the verse that stood out and was referenced as I have here in Romans by the Apostle Paul, in Galatians by the Apostle Paul, and Hebrews by the unknown writer of Hebrews to explain what it means for us to live as people who are following after Jesus. So this is it. Habakkuk 2, 4. God's word, the beautiful and true. The just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and seeing this small verse that tells us huge things. This verse that was at the forefront of early Christian imagination for what it means to live in response to your grace. I pray as we reflect on it this morning, move upon our hearts to see what the Apostle Paul and the writer of the Hebrews uh, epistle saw. Set forth in these few words the way of life, how we might live as people following after Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. So I mentioned the Apostle Paul and he references this verse, this fundamental to his understanding about what it means to follow after Jesus. But do you know where we meet the Apostle Paul the first time in Scripture? We don't meet him, meet him, but we don't shake his hand, but we don't encounter Paul in one of his letters first. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. But that's not the first place we meet him. We meet him in Acts chapter 7. It's the very first time we meet the Apostle Paul. And when we meet him, he's not a Christian leader. He's not a pastor. He's what we would call today a religious terrorist. Now, they wouldn't have used that term then because that term didn't exist. So it's a bit of an anachronism there. But he's what we would call a religious terrorist. 
We see in the book of Acts, the beginning of chapter, or the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, that the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, <laughs> he was there at the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen, the first Christian that was killed after the resurrection of Christ for the cause of Jesus. Stephen was murdered by a crowd that decided to stone him because he was testifying that Jesus had brought grace not just to one set of people, but he had brought the kingdom of grace to the whole world. And we meet the Apostle Paul when it says that the crowd that decided to stone Stephen, they took their coat, their cloaks off, and they laid them at Paul's feet. Which seems to be an indication that he was kind of over the whole thing. That he was the, uh, the, the foreman, in a sense, of this terrible action. And in fact, in the first one of Acts 8, it says that Saul, that's his other name, Saul, Paul, that he approved of what was happening. That's the first place we meet Paul, who wrote 13 letters of the New Testament as a religious terrorist. And in fact, chapter 8 says this, quote, Saul, or Paul, began to destroy the church. Destroy the church is how it is described in Acts 8. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He even speaks about himself years later. If you read in Galatians 1 or Philippians 3, he talks about this, that I lived to destroy the church of Christ. He was a religious terrorist. Yet 30 years later, 30 years after this, Apostle Paul himself is martyred he is executed by the Roman government as a follower of Jesus. A man who had traveled in those 30 years throughout the Roman Empire, not to arrest Christians, but to plant churches. He had dedicated his life to the goal of making sure that there were communities of people that had heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're depending on him. How in the world can we explain such a change? How in the world can we explain that happening? How could he go from someone who was trying to destroy the church to someone that God used to bring untold numbers of people to his grace? Who God continues to use as we read his letters in the New Testament. How can we explain that? We explain it this way. God had given him a new heart. God had transformed him, given him a new motivation, a new way of thriving that changed everything. Now, I don't think we have any religious terrors in here as far as... No, we don't. Okay. I had to look through, but I don't, I don't think we have anybody who would qualify as a religious terrorist in here this morning. But I don't think any of us in here would argue with the idea that apart from God's grace, we're eat up selfishness. That we are eat up with sin. And maybe we're not dragging people out of their house to put them in prison or anything like that. But that we so often act in terrible ways. We speak in terrible ways. We ponder and ruminate on terrible things. That we put our minds and our hands and our hearts to task for selfish and bad motives. 
Lastly, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we look at how the gospel is good news for the lost. That those who come to Jesus by faith receive a new record before God. Forgiveness of sins and justification in His sight because of the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. And as good of news as that is, and if that was just the gospel, then fantastic. It's the best news I can think of. There are lots of people that have heard that before, and they say, well, if that's true, then we can just do whatever we want, right? If that's the gospel, then that just give us, gives us a license to, to do anything, because we can receive forgiveness. So this morning, what I want to do is focus on a different aspect of the gospel. Not just the gospel as forgiveness of sins and righteousness in God's sight. The gospel, the good news, that God doesn't just work outside of us declaring a verdict, but He begins to work within us to renew our hearts, to transform and change us, to give us new hearts. Imagine with me this scenario. You're talking to a new Christian. Someone's heard the good news of Jesus and they place their faith in Him. And you told them the good news that we talked about last week. You have forgiveness of sins. You're not righteous in God's sight. And there's nothing you need to do to access that. It's just depending on Jesus. And it's a gift. You've told them that. And they believe it. It's a glorious thing. And then they ask you this. What now? What's my greatest need now that I've placed my faith in Jesus? What's next? What's my greatest need from the moment I've placed my faith in Jesus until I die? What do I need the most? Now I think it's pretty common for Christians to think, okay, I've got the gospel, forgiveness of sins. But now it's time for me to man up. Or now it's time for me to woman up. Jesus has given so much for me, now it's time for me to give to Him. Maybe we've even said those kinds of things. And there's any number of answers that we or people would give to this question of what's next. What's my greatest need now? But I think they all fall under a category of what I like to call Jesus plus. Jesus plus. A thinking that Jesus and faith in Him plus this thing is what will make me whole. What will make me complete. Now there's some extreme versions of this. They'll say, Jesus, okay, now you have faith in Jesus and now you need to work hard. You've received forgiveness. Now make sure you don't sin again and lose it. You've gotten into the kingdom of God by grace. Well, now you need to stay in and mature by your own efforts. Now, we've probably all encountered some version of this in, in talking with people over time. Um, I, I experienced versions of this here and there growing up. At Sunday school teachers that I think were well-meaning that would tell me things like, if you sin, nothing you ask forgiveness, it was like starting all over again. That forgiveness of sins is a clean slate, but now it's up to you to make sure you stay in the positive column. But if you sin, you have, you, you're back in the same predicament. So every time you do an individual sin, you've got to confess like the first time. I remember having someone tell me that if I ever wake up and I'm less passionate about God on Monday than I was the before, before that I've backslidden into lostness. I've lost my salvation, in a sense, as if it was something for me to lose, like I gave it to myself. I even remember being told once that if I sin after, if I ask for forgiveness from God, place my faith in Him, 
received it. And then was on my way home. I had an impure thought and got hit by a car before I could, you know, confess my sin that had split the gates of hell wide open. This is an extreme version of Jesus Christ. In this scenario, my greatest need after receiving forgiveness was to be absolutely perfect. And that was all on me. That was all on me. To work up the ability within myself to never mess up again. Now that's an extreme version of Jesus Plus. I think the actual more dangerous ones are the ones that look cold. There's more dangerous versions of Jesus Plus. Because the one I just said, for most people, you're going to see it and you're going to go, okay, yeah, that's, that's definitely not right. That's definitely not but there's versions of Jesus Plus that can look, uh, look right and be almost insidious in our hearts. We don't even necessarily say these, but we tell people what they need is Jesus Plus a Dave Ramsey course to teach, teach them to be debt-free. Now, there's nothing wrong <laughs> with getting rid of debt. There's nothing wrong at all with being financially uh, you know, um, responsible. Don't hear me to say that. But sometimes we can communicate in our words and our actions that what someone really needs is Jesus plus responsible financial. Or we say something like, you need Jesus plus a healthy marriage to be complete. Healthy marriage is fantastic. Great. It's a gift from God. But it's not Jesus plus this thing that will make me complete. Or we say, Jesus plus you need these three kids in a new house. Or that a real follower of Jesus dresses like this or smells like this. We have Jesus plus. There's other versions of this. We'll say, okay, your greatest need now that you've placed your faith in Jesus is to know your faith. And so you need to get after reading. You need to collect your faith like facts. So you need to read the Bible, which is great. Absolutely. Please, please read your Bible. It is crucial to the Christian law. But the idea is that you know, read some theology books, memorize the creeds of the church. Your greatest need is now to develop your mind. Your mind. You've come to faith, now develop your mind. You need Jesus plus being really, really smart to be whole. Or we say your greatest need is to really feel your faith. To really work up the emotional experience of faith in Jesus. And so start praying regularly. It's important for you to have big emotional times of crying and really demonstrating the reality of your faith by how passionate you are. Your greatest need after faith in Jesus is really feel. You need Jesus plus this emotional, uh, big emotional experience all the time. Or your greatest need is to be really active in your faith. So find some ways to serve other people sacrificially. Give to your church or to other worthy causes. That's your greatest need. You need Jesus plus works to really complete your faith. Now, all of those things are good, right? Absolutely. Reading scripture is fantastic. Learning more about our faith is fantastic. Getting in touch and really feeling the depth of God's love. And having a call up from within us, not stoic response, but passionate response, that's good. Serving other people, of course that's good. But none of those things can be added to Jesus 
to make us complete. All of those things are good, but none of those meet the question. What is our greatest need after we have come to Jesus by faith? This is our greatest need. It's to continue coming to Jesus by faith. We never, ever, ever move on from the gospel. We never, we don't want to paint a picture that there's some future where I am suddenly doing so many good works that I need the grace of Jesus less. Friends, I don't need the grace of Jesus less. We never get to a point where we ascend to some perfection. That's not God's plan for us. Now, he's not calling us into sin. And again, he's calling, he renews our minds, he renews our hearts, he renews our hands to chase after worthy things. But where does all of that come from? It comes from us coming back to Jesus by faith. Not searching within ourselves to find the motivation or the fuel. If we try to run, if we try to do the Christian life, I've used this imagery before, if we try to do the Christian life with anything other than the grace of Jesus as our motivation, it's like putting diesel fuel in our regular athletic car. It's going to run for a minute, and then it's going to ruin the engine. We try to use anything other than the grace of Jesus as our motivation and our fuel. We're not going to get down the road. Our greatest need after coming to Jesus by faith the first time is to come back to Him by faith tomorrow and the next day and the next day, depending on His grace always. Not Jesus plus, never Jesus plus. Because here's the thing, adding anything to Jesus and His grace as our ultimate need is always a subtraction. Adding anything at all to the grace of Jesus is always a subtraction. It is always going to be a subtraction to His glory, and it's going to wreak havoc on our hearts, because Jesus plus will inevitably lead to us taking our eyes off of Jesus and focusing on the plus. Always. Always. So the idea of like, your greatest need is now to read the Bible for uh, 30 minutes a day instead. What happens when that doesn't work? When you don't, when you run out of time and you sleep late? You start to feel guilty, right? You're not running to Jesus and faith in Him and dependence upon His grace. You're now focused in on yourself. You're turning inward, not outward toward Him. And adding anything to Jesus as our ultimate source Strength and nourishment is always a subtraction. So if it's not Jesus plus, what is it? If it's not Jesus plus this thing, what is it? It's what's spoken about in our verse. The just shall live by what? Faith. What's the source of our life? Faith in Jesus. Dependence and trust upon Him. Notice our verse today. The verse central to the understanding of the New Testament church the just, those who have declared righteous in God's sight live by faith. Our greatest need is Jesus. We never move on from this. We never move on from relying on Him. Not just for forgiveness, but for change. That's what we're talking about this morning. The good news of a new heart. Our greatest need always remains the grace of Jesus Christ. But we don't need to declare, be declared righteous again. We're righteous in God's sight. That was good news for the lost, right? We received that new record. It's not like we've got to come back tomorrow and make sure that's still active. There's, <laughs> it's not something, it's not like a contract that we need to keep coming back to renew. 
That's ours. So we don't need a new record again, but what do we need? We need new hearts. I don't just need forgiveness. I need transformation. And you do too. And that's what the gospel, this good news to the found, the promise of a new, of a new heart focuses on. It's faith in Jesus that he is working not just outside of me in declaring me righteous, but faith in Jesus that he is at work within me. This is the internal transformation that responds to his external <laughs> forgiveness of us. Now look at how we have it written in our bulletin. We have it written off to the side the different aspects of the gospel. Gospel is good news for the family because it offers the promise of a new heart. God is transforming. Look who's at work. God is transforming every part of us, making Jesus and his love our motive and our way to thrive in life. The emphasis is on who, not on us. It's on God. And this is something that is promised throughout the Scripture. Notice in our call to worship from Ezekiel 36, this promise. In the darkest days of, uh, of the history of God's people, in exile from Babylon, removed from the promised land altogether, looking around, finding themselves as strangers in a strange land, completely removed and from every aspect of how they would have interpreted the love of God, Ezekiel says, for God says to Ezekiel, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. It's a focus on God. And we see it in the New Testament. If you flip through, you'll see in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul uses a, a slightly different image. He talks about putting on the new self. But this is being given a new heart. A new self that is being renewed in the image of its creator. In true knowledge in true holiness, and in true righteousness. The emphasis there is we are being renewed in every part of who we are. So a new heart doesn't just mean new emotions. In the Bible, when it speaks about the heart, it's talking about the, the center of who we are. So God's renewing our minds. Renewing our minds to know Him and to think His thoughts after Him, to rejoice in the truth. God renews our hearts, making us holy, cleansing us, so that we love rightly. God's renewing our hands so that we do deeds of righteousness. Not to try to earn a paycheck from God. Not to try to be declared righteous in His sight. But we're declared righteous so that now we can put our hands to the task of doing that which is right. God renews us in all of who we are to love His truth. To love His goodness. And to do what is right. All of these emphasize that it's not about us drawing from within ourselves some motivation. You know, a lot of times, um, I think preachers can often try to use guilt as a motivation. Maybe you've experienced that if you have some history in the church. Um, scenario will be the, there's a budget shortfall. And people haven't given the way they, uh, they expected. And so all of a sudden they're looking at this shortfall at the end of the year. And what do they do? They try to use some form of guilt to motivate the congregation to give. Or they use guilt to motivate the congregation to volunteer for, uh, to teach Sunday school or, or whatever. Using that as a motivation 
I guess sometimes can work in the short term. Maybe you can guilt people into giving some money. Maybe you can guilt people into signing up and volunteering for something. But that is not tapping on the new heart that is ours in God. With Jesus as our motivation. We are motivated not by guilt. We are motivated and compelled by the love that has been shown to us. Guilt will not draw out the love of God from our hearts. But His love will. We respond to His love with love. So the motivation here is not that we try to achieve something. And it's not us drawing from within ourselves to find the power to change ourselves. That's not what it is at all. It's God's work. He gives us new hearts. And sometimes, friends, we kind of have to take this on new word. Because frankly, sometimes it doesn't feel like I have a new heart. <laughs> sometimes I search inwardly and I cannot believe the depth of sin that still resides within me. But he said it. He has said, I will give you a new heart. He will change us. And it's reliance on him that brings us to change. It's coming back to Jesus as our motive and Jesus as our way to thrive over and over again. It's not running to any other fountain that won't leave us either poisoned or still thirsty. Now, sure, we grow in his grace. But again, it's not growth that we make happen. God awakens our dead hearts. And gives us new hearts. And we're awakened by Him. We're empowered by Him. Now don't hear me wrong. This doesn't mean that we're passive. It doesn't mean we sit at home on the couch and say, well, I'm waiting for God to make something happen. Not at all. But it does mean that we never move on to a time when we need the grace of God less. We never move on to a time when the love of God is not the gas in our tank that keeps us going. It means when our love is running cold, when we think it's running cold, we turn and we cherish Jesus. We treasure Jesus. We put before our eyes Jesus. And for every one look we, we turn in on our own hearts, we take ten looks at Jesus. Because the only thing that can change us is beholding and loving Jesus and finding ourselves changed in the process. We never move on, Jesus, plus anything. We treasure Jesus. We meditate on the fact that we are treasured by Jesus. That we delight in Him because He delights in us. We are always driven and motivated by the God who moved in His grace toward us before we could ever move toward Him. So we're not being passive, but we are being called to life by God. And we are always responding and acting in the reality that He has responded and acted toward us first. We love because He first loved us. That's true always. Now, let me reiterate, because I wasn't clear earlier. This is not at odds with reading Scripture or praying. It's not at odds with serving other people. But if we aren't delighting in the grace of Jesus that is shown to us, then those are just going to be places for us to perform. If we're reading scripture and we're, we're spending more and more time in prayer, but that's not centered in delighting in who Jesus is and what he has done, 
then they're just, they just become badges of righteousness for us to wear. And then we'll come away and we'll say, man, I'm feeling really holy today because I was able to spend X amount of time reading the Bible. I feel really great today because I was spending X amount of time praying. Now it's good to delight in the Bible and it's good to feel good about praying. But our delight in Scripture always leads us to delight in Jesus. Our delight in prayer is delight in our Father because that's who we're praying to. We never, ever move on from the incredible grace of God in Jesus Christ. His grace, friends. Or to say it again, our greatest need after believing the gospel of Jesus the first time is to keep coming back to the gospel. Not just a gospel that's something of something that happens outside of us, but it's the good news that God is transforming us. His grace will not leave us in our sin and selfishness. It won't. He will not leave us to the winds of our small desires, but He is changing us to be like Him, to love what He loves, to value what He values, to be generous because He is generous, to be welcoming because He is welcoming. That's the good news of a new heart. That's the good news of what it means for us as the just, as those who have been made righteous in His sight, to live by faith, as it speaks about in Habakkuk. This is the very lifeblood of every step of faith, delighting in Jesus. And this is how we grow. This is how we thrive. We never move on from this. Now, that does not mean that the Christian life is a straight line of ascent. It never is. <laughs> it's never, it starts here and you just climb like it's a mountain and you just keep going straight up. In fact, a lot of the times it's three steps forward, two steps back, or even sometimes two steps forward or three steps back. It's less of an ascent like this, and it's more like a spiral <laughs> sometimes. Or to change the metaphor, the Christian life is like a roller coaster. There's ups and downs. Sometimes it goes faster than others. Sometimes it's going up, sometimes it's coming down. But the good news for us is that we're strapped in. We're strapped into this roller coaster and it's leading somewhere. We're strapped in by the love of God and Christ that has set a hold of us and we can be sure that it leads to Him. So as we struggle, as we doubt, as we realize the selfishness that's still within us and that we can't draw on inner strength to work up from it ourselves, let's draw on the strength of Jesus. Because the point of faith is not how big our faith is. The point of faith is the object of our faith. It's not how big my faith is. So we don't have faith in our faith. That will fail us. But our faith is uh, dependent, no matter how small it is or big it is, on the object of our faith, Jesus. And His shoulders are broad enough to carry us. And He has said, none can snatch us from His hand. Our faith is sufficient, not because it's big, but because of who the faith is in. In closing, it, this might feel like a weird closing, but it, if you've ever been to the circus, or up until a few years ago, you may have remembered the elephants in the circus. And they come out, and elephants are the most powerful mammals on earth. You can't make an elephant do anything by strength. Like, you can't out strength and elf, the big, the strong. But have you ever wondered if you were at the circus or if you've seen all the videos, how in the world can these trainers 
leave these massive elephants around with little ropes. If you've ever noticed, they have little ropes tied to their legs and they're them around and making the elephant do the thing out in the world. At any moment, the elephant, if it decided to, could snap that rope and two run straight out the door. Well, the reason and the way they can do that is because the way they train the elephants for the circus is they take the elephant and it's a baby. Before it knows anything, they remove it from its mother. They drive a stake into the ground and they take a massive chain that the baby elephant cannot break and tie it against them. And the baby elephant cries and pulls. The chain digs into its flesh. And eventually, the baby elephant gives up. The baby elephant learns, I'm stuck. I can't break this big chain. And once the baby elephant learns that, the circus trainers, they replace the chain with the rope. Now, the rope's not as strong as the chain. But the baby elephant, as it's growing, it feels the weight on its sled, and it remembers the strength of the chain. It remembers, I can't break that chain. And when I pull on that chain and try to break it, it hurts. And so when we see these massive elephants being led around, what they're remembering is the strength of the chain that had held them earlier. Even though at any moment they had the strength to break that rope, they feel the weight, and they go, okay. I can't break that. And so they remain in bondage by something that can't hold them down, that's not strong enough. In the Christian world, sometimes I think we struggle in this world a lot like an elephant that's being led around by a rope. Our bondage and our servanthood, our slavery to sin has been broken by Jesus. The scriptures tell us this. When we come to him by faith, we are saying he is victorious. He has defeated the power of sin. But when we struggle, we're a lot like those elephants that feel the weight of this rope that we can break by dependence in Jesus, by faith in Him. We feel this weight, and we remember the chain. We feel the weight of a rope we can break by the power of Jesus and His grace. We remember the chain. And so we're led around. The calling to us as we walk forward in this Christian life, we're going to have doubts and we're going to have struggles. But because the power of sin has been broken, because we have the promise of a new heart that God is transforming us when we struggle and when we doubt, when we are tempted to follow after sin, sin does not hold the claim over us anymore. We have the power in Jesus, like those mighty elephants, to not be enslaved by something that can be broken, but to trust and depend upon His grace and faith. Friends, we're not alone. And that's what we're going to talk about next week when we talk about how the gospel is good news for the city. It's good news. It's the good news of a new community in the church. And so we're going to talk about that communal aspect. The gospel is not just me and Jesus individually. It's Jesus and us together. And as we walk, as we depend upon the promise of a new heart, we realize that we are the only ones that receive this promise. That I receive the promise of a new heart, and you've received the promise of a new heart. And the times when I don't feel the promise of a new heart happening within me, we declare to each other the promises of God. We depend on that.
But we'll talk about that more next week. But take heart as you walk through the ordinariness of your life, as you face struggles, as you face doubts and temptations. Know that the God who has laid His grace upon you and His purposes upon you, He will see those purposes to completion. That promise of a new heart is true. You are being renewed, and that is true. So even when the lies are very loud in your ears, they can't win. Sin does not have the final word. God does. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promise of a new heart. I thank you for the glory of the gospel. Not just forgiveness of sins. That would be enough to keep us singing, I think, for a billion years of your grace and your glory. But we thank you for the promise that you are changing us from the inside, God. That you are making us new. That we're not stuck in the winds of our small desires. We're not stuck chasing after the emptiness of sin. You're working within us to love your truth, to love your beauty, to love that which is right. So help us, God. Help us depend upon this promise. Even when we don't feel it, that we would sense your hand at work, your hand that is set upon us, and will not let us go. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.